Flowers wilt. Trees fall. Mountains erode. Caves collapse. Rivers dry up. Fires burn out. Animals die. Matter decays. Decayed matter fertilizes new growth. So many stars. Hello and welcome to the 38th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and Out of All Doors is a podcast now hurtling toward its own destruction. Ever nearer, ever nearer. Remember how last time I said it was in decline? Well, now I'm pretty sure it's in free fall. But until it actually meets that destruction, it's about the outdoors. Have you ever heard of accelerationism? Nod your head if you have. I'll never know, but I think it's good if this experience is interactive for you. As I understand it, accelerationism is the idea that the best way to move on to something new and better is to hasten the inevitable end of the current bad thing. Like, if you think a system of government is bad, the best thing to do isn't to try to make little reforms here and there so that it gets marginally better and continues to limp along year after year. To accelerationists, the best thing you could do would be to help that system of government be more fully and completely itself, so that it would careen off a cliff, explode in the air, and then never be seen again, allowing whatever better thing you're replacing it with to step in and start cleaning up the mess. The metaphors are mixing, I know, but I also know that you know what I'm talking about. It's accelerationism. Accelerationism! Come on, you know accelerationism. So why am I talking about accelerationism? Well, if you really knew what it was, you would have connected those dots by now. I'm saying that I'm now in accelerationist mode for this podcast. If it's all collapsing, why should I spend time and energy trying to prop up little portions of it here and there? I should be wailing on the support columns with a sledgehammer. Well, that sounds like a good way to get crushed, so maybe not that. But maybe I should be throwing sledgehammers at support columns from a distance, or using a trebuchet to launch sledgehammers at support columns from a great distance. It all depends on how big this metaphorical structure that's collapsing is. But the point is, I need to be hastening the end of Out of All Doors as we know it. Not because I hate it, but because I love it and I want it to become something better. But it can't do that in its current form. Its current form is doomed. It's beyond redemption. The entire podcast has become the underappreciated nature segment. Yeah, I said it. I went there, as no kids ever say anymore, but as many kids used to say at one time. But look, I'm not trying to be a neo-terminist about this, but what you say is a neo-terminist. Well, I'm glad you asked, or rather, I'm glad I pretended to think you asked, because by doing so, I provided myself with a simple way of transitioning into a space-filling explanation of neo-terminism, which is a philosophy that Grang and I made up in the year 2009, I think. Really, if I were to do it again, I'd drop the neo-prefix. Terminism is a better name for it. But basically, the idea is this. It's a philosophy, right? And the adherents of this philosophy, the terminists, want one thing. The end of the current epoch. That's E-P-O-C-H, not E-P-I-C, the adjective that no kids ever use to describe fails anymore, but which many kids used to use to describe fails, especially fails of the substantial variety. Let's define epic. 
Or rather, let's just copy and paste Dictionary.com's definition. It's a particular period of time marked by distinctive features, events, etc. You're always in an epic, right? It's impossible not to be in an epic. And so, whatever epic you happen to be in, even if you don't have a name for it, even if you can't really identify its distinctive features, events, etc., if you were a terminist, you would want it to end. You would exist in a perpetual state of pursuing the end of the current epic. But here's the thing. Here's the part that I want to avoid. Here's the part that would make terminism a bad philosophy for this podcast. The terminist is never satisfied. The terminist's elation at the end of an epic is only momentary, if it exists at all, because as soon as a new epic appears, the terminist wants it to end. There is no destination. There is no particular period of time marked by distinctive features, events, etc., in which the terminus can be content. He does not want the current epic to end because it is bad, nor does he want it to end because it is good. He wants it to end because it has not ended yet. That is not why I want the current incarnation of Out of All Doors to come to an end. I don't want it to end just for the sake of ending. I want it to end so that it can be replaced by something new and beautiful and functional. Something that I can be proud of. And then, when that thing arrives in place of this shambling wreck of a declining podcast, I will want it to stay forever. And what could possibly be less terminist than that? And so you may ask, what will this new Out of All Doors look like? More importantly, since it will be a podcast, what will it sound like? Will it have a new logo that wasn't just thrown together in five minutes by Cousin Brent because I needed something to go there? These are questions that I can't answer while this current version of Out of All Doors is still filling my nostrils, blaring in my ears, flashing in my eyes, and dominating my other two senses as well, those being taste and touch. Look, no one likes a corpse. Or rather, no one reputable likes a corpse. Usually we just avoid the corpse. We try not to look at it. We move our chairs away from it. We mow around it. We crop it out of photographs. We tell our children not to talk to it. We shoo our pets off of it. We certainly don't buy it any gifts. We don't speculate about its weight. We don't put sunscreen on it on hot days. We play croquet in the backyard instead of the front yard for the first time ever. If we talk about it at all, it's only at night and always in a whisper and only in the presence of people who aren't going to make a big deal about it. We let its mail pile up, undelivered. We pray that an earthquake, mudslide, or strong wind doesn't shift it closer to the house. We mouth the word awkward to each other when strangers, guests, or police officers try to ask us about it. But do you know what we do like? The colorful, disease-curing medicinal plant that grows in the exact spot where the corpse eventually rotted and fertilized the ground. Not only does the plant look nice and cure our own disease if we happen to have one, but it also makes us rich when we pluck its leaves and sell them to a pharmaceutical company. So I'm not sure if Out of All Doors is in the dying stage, or if it's in the rotting corpse stage, or what. But I do know that it's not in the healthy body stage, and it's not in the colorful, disease-curing plant fertilized by the rotting corpse stage. But we'll get there! We just have to die and rot first, which I openly admit will not be pleasant. Most people agree that there are few things less pleasant than dying and rotting, but lingering in agony has to be on that short list. This is getting very dark. The point is, yes, we are accelerating our decline, but we're doing it on purpose with our hopes pinned to the future on what comes after. This is all to say that Regarding the Dawn is still around and I might give Grang his own segment. Uh, let's end, shall we? Thank you.
Okay, I know people are probably getting tired of me beginning these calls by expressing surprise that you're still alive, but I am surprised that you're still alive, Grang. We haven't heard from you in months. I can only imagine the many bizarre disasters that have befallen you in that time. Yes, Drent, I've actually never been more alive, and I'm afraid that whatever these bizarre disasters you've been imagining are, they're going to have to stay there in your imagination, because I've spent the last few months experiencing nothing but success after success. Well, I mean, except in acquiring the login information for the old Out of All Doors blog, of course, which I'm sure no. that... No, I got the login information. The login information. That's a nice, elegant portmanteau. Why haven't we been using it, Grant? But anyway, yes, I have it. That's why I called. I'm ready to present it to you. Uh, what? what? What's the catch? There's... No catch, Drench. I've got it written down right here. I also have it memorized, just in case I lost this paper or the writing became allegedly smudged or I suddenly forgot how to read or something. Are you ready to finally reclaim the Out of All Doors blog? This is our moment of triumph. Are you... Are you serious, Grang? You really got it? Of course I'm serious. Why would you doubt me? I've been hot on the trail of this login information for, well, a little while now. Does it stand to reason that I would get it? Don't you recall how confident I was? All right. Uh, well, okay. Prove it, Greg. I'm uh, I'm on the blog right now. Uh, what's the username? Okay. Well, I changed it to what I thought you would probably want it to be. So the username is Adam or Greg. That's no spaces, but with capital letters for the different words. I figured it made sense to put your name first, even though I was the one who got the login information back, and I was the one changing the username, so I could have made it anything I wanted. All right, uh, I put that in. Uh, all right, what's the uh, what's the password? And just so you know, I'm fully prepared for you to launch the stalling tactic designed to delay the revelation that you didn't actually get the login information now. The password is X5 exclamation point. E-E-E, capital M-O-5. I let Sammy choose it. That's what he pecked out on the keyboard, and it struck me as very secure. I'm not sure if it means anything or not. Uh, okay, uh, repeat that. X-5, exclamation point, E-E-E, capital M-O-5. Uh, it worked. Yeah, of course it worked. So I'm not sure if we ever settled on a segment concept for me. I know we'd had a little trouble narrowing it down. But putting that aside, if you want me to contribute written material to the blog as well, or if you want me to be the webmaster... Okay, I I can't believe it. Greg, how how did you do this? What do you mean? How did you get the login information? Dedication. But how specifically? Grant, the most honest answer is dedication. I told you and the listeners from the very beginning that dedication would see us through, and see us through it did. I hope lots of kids were listening and following along with my journey at home, because that's a great, great lesson for all of them. I'm actually getting goosebumps right now as I think about the amazing things that the chronicle of my dedication will ultimately inspire kids as young as four to grow up and accomplish. So you... You made enough money doing that mechanical transformation stuff to, uh, what, what was it you were doing? I, I'm just, I'm honestly, uh... Impressed? 
No, I'm I'm confused, Grang. Look, Grant, I did what I told you I was going to do. I learned the art of mechanical transformation, earned enough money working for Maurice to pay him to transform the car I purchased with the fly fishing felon's money into a bus that the caribou would accept in exchange for the one I lost, earned enough additional money to give the caribou as proof that I had successfully run more than 50 people across the Canadian border, said goodbye to Maurice, drove from North Dakota to Des Moines on the new bus, gave it to the caribou, gave him the additional money, asked for the login information for the blog, and he gave it to me. That worked? Greg, there's no way that worked. You're you're lying to me. The proof is in the pudding, Grant. You're on the blog right now, aren't you? Uh, well, yeah, I, I am. What do you have against dedication, Grant? Why don't you want our toddler listeners to learn the most important life lesson there is, which is that being an effective detective requires dedication. All right, Grant, it's just... Look, I've seen some weird things in the background of some of our Skype calls. Like, I saw that arrow get shot into the wall right behind you. But but you're not a reliable narrator. You're an unreliable narrator. And this whole story, like, we've had to just take your word on pretty much all of it. And I was inclined to believe a lot of it because, well, what you were telling us never made you look good. Why would you make up stories that made you look like such a failure? But... I don't know. At the same time, it just... Grant, Grant, just accept it. Do you really think that now is the time to double down on doubting me? Now? In the moment that I deliver the login information? I'm reeling. With excitement over having the blood back under your control? What? Oh, no. No. Out of all doors is an accelerationist mode now, Grang. I'm not going to use the blog. That would be the opposite of accelerationism. No, we're spurring the podcast toward destruction now, so that it can be replaced by something better. Um, well, you still intend to uphold our agreement, though, right? What agreement? That I would get my own segment on Out of All Doors if I retrieve the blog login information. Actually, we should call it blog information. That's a three-word portmanteau. We never had that agreement, Grang. I'm not honoring an agreement we never had. But, actually, I was going to tell you, I think I am going to give you a segment. I can think of no single thing that I could do that would be more consistent with my new accelerationist approach to this podcast. Oh, great. So you are honoring the agreement. No, I'm not. I'm giving you a segment for reasons unrelated to the retrieval of the login information. Grant, come on. Now who's the unreliable narrator? I just gave you the login information, and then moments later, you gave me my own segments. Those were the exact terms of the original agreement. I'm not giving you the segment as a reward. I'm giving you the segment because it'll be so bad that it'll speed up the complete destruction of the podcast that we need before we can rebuild it as something better, at which point, by the way, I promise you will be gone. Or my new segment will single-handedly revive the podcast, launching it into a new golden age. No, that won't happen. I'm going to dedicate myself to ensuring that it does. All right, good. That's great news. That's exactly how I want you to approach this. Then we're on the same page. Never, Grang. Okay, I'll uh, I'll talk to you soon. Wait, Dred, Dred. We need to discuss the specifics of my segment. It can be anything you want it to be. I don't care. I figure the more freedom you have, the more accelerationist it'll inadvertently be. 
Also, Grang, while we're here, does the fact that you got the login information mean that you finally got to go home and see your son for the first time? Oh, yeah, I've seen him. Oh, good. Yep. Well, uh, bye, Grang. Bye. We know where the road leads, to a dead end, but, in the spirit of the episode, we punch the accelerator to the floor. Stomp would probably be a better verb to describe what we do to the accelerator. Punch makes it sound like we use our fists on the accelerator, which we most decidedly do not. The dead end draws closer. What will happen when we reach it? Will we crash into a wall? Will we fly off of a cliff? Will we hit a tree? Will we careen through a park full of people screaming and fleeing from our out-of-control vehicle? Or is there a chance, even a slight chance, even a minuscule chance, even an infinitesimal chance that we will enter the battery? And behold, I saw a white bat, and no one sat upon him. For although it was a very large bat, people do not ride bats. Indeed, just because something is big enough to ride does not mean that it should be ridden. And behold this as well, the white bat's eyes were mismatched. One was as purple as a well-deserved bruise on the thigh of a heretic. The other was as green as a petulant sea in the light of a failing alien sun. Its breath smelled like classic bat breath, but more so. Upon its head was a regal crest of fur like a mohawk, but not rebellious, rather authoritative. The white bat flapped its wings with disturbing irregularity, timed according to a rhythm unlike any we could recognize. And behold, the white bat breathed loudly through its nose, so that all those within earshot wondered if it knew how obnoxious it was being, but lo, I assure you, it knew. The bat flew to the heavily guarded tank of the recently declared world's greatest fish of all time and dispatched all of its security measures with the same ease demonstrated by a doctor when she pronounces the word doctor in her native tongue. And the fish, sensing the approach of the bat, did thrash and thrash, whipping the water in its tank into a miniature maelstrom. But at the crucial moment, the fish did offer of itself to the white bat, and the white bat did dine on revered fish in the dark. And behold, I saw a red bat, and again, despite its great size, no one rode upon it. It appeared on the horizon like a bat-shaped wound in the sky, and as it grew closer, the wound appeared to bleed until the blood filled our vision. The red bat was hairless and unclothed, quite nude in all respects, and every inch red, of course, but for its white eyes, white as color-corrected milk in a commercial for wholesome breakfast, white as the freshest dotted line down the middle of a two-lane county road in rural Indiana. The red bat could read minds and did so recklessly, reading even boring minds, even dumb minds, rendering its great gift unenviable, but doing a good job of getting a broad cross-section of minds. And what does the red bat find? Behold, who knows? The red bat saw the sights. The red bat took in the seven man-made wonders of the world and was openly disdainful of them all. Its facial expressions more expressive than a million written expressions of disdain. And behold, the red bat had a tick, an inward twitch of its feet, perhaps the least noticed or discussed body part on all bats, but this tick drew the attention of all who saw it directly to the red bat's feet. 
a mind-expanding experience, but too much for many to handle, for the red bat's feet were not likely to let anyone who looked upon them look away unchanged. But who can truly say whether all of these changes were for the better? And behold, I saw a black bat, and no one rode thereupon, and everyone said, that is the color we expect bats to be, but then quickly followed such statements with further statements such as, but they are not usually that big, nor do they usually portend the end, so obviously. The black bat wore a necklace of the kind that one might expect to see a headsman removing and handing to his assistant just before he raises the axe and brings it down to sever an ostensibly evil man's head from his narrow shoulders. And is there any connection between the evilness of men and the width of their shoulders? Perhaps, behold, we should leave such ponderings to the philosophers. And speaking of which, behold, the black bat gathered all the philosophers together, hurting them like a cattle rustler rustles cattle under the cover of a night infamous for its record-setting darkness. The philosophers, nervous and milling around, waited for the black bat to make clear to them why they had been gathered. But the black bat did no such thing, felt no such obligation. And then the philosophers began to talk among themselves, and discovered that many of them were not philosophers by trade, but were merely hobbyists, or, in some cases, merely children whose parents had forced them to take weekly philosophy lessons from whoever passed for philosophy instructors in their backwater towns, hamlets, burgs, and so forth. And behold, some of these children had only gone to two lessons so far. The black bat drank from a cup like a man, fetched newspapers with screaming, panicked headlines like a dog, and could sit on a lily pad without making it sink like a frog. The black bat had heard the first song ever played, the first series of sounds that could ever be considered a song. The black bat had heard that. Behold, that should impress you. The black bat searched every alley, closet, and utility room on earth for a sign, and many say it found one. And behold, I saw a pale bat, unridden, neither sick nor well, neither dehydrated nor hydrated, neither fond of us nor sick of us. The pale bat had four names that could be spoken in different combinations and orders if one wanted to make different kinds of appeals to it. Those names and the kinds of appeals to which they corresponded will not be, behold, recorded here. The pale bat trails smoke from its mouth, but smokes no cigarette, no cigar, no cigarillo, no pipe. And eventually, after weeks of flying back and forth, the smoke trails began to make a pattern. And that pattern was that of a chessboard. And it was not hard to imagine what had become of the pieces that should have been on that chessboard. They had been ruined by humans somehow. It was difficult to imagine exactly how we had ruined them, but we knew that the important part of the message was that we were to blame, and that's the lesson we took from it. And behold, the pale bat played light-hearted pranks on the other three bats, white, red, and black, and lo, we did not find the pranks funny, because we were very worried about what was going to happen to us. So little in our lives was making much sense by that point. And the pale bat was always sure to emphasize the distinction between it and the white bat. And even though we never mistook them for each other, the difference between their colorings was indeed very difficult to describe and often led us to wonder why one of them hadn't chosen yellow, for example, or even gray, which is a plenty apocalyptic color by anyone's standard. 
And behold, the pale bat rent the earth in two and outflowed the magma, spilling into space where it began to drift toward the sun as if returning home in a way. And all of us went spinning into sparkling blackness, grasping toward stars which were not within reach, were rather trillions of light years distance for all practical purposes, and we had trouble breathing since the atmosphere was long gone, plus many of us were not wearing coats, so we froze solid, suffocated, and our bodies proceeded without us in a most disorderly fashion, and in that way kept the spirit of humanity alive without any actual spirits or any actual life. We reached the dead end. Oh please, oh please, oh please give us one more battery to enter. One more battery about which we can eventually say we leave the battery. Hello, listeners. This is contributor Andrew. Now, it might have come to your attention that there were some not-so-subtle attacks on my credibility, but I wanted to come on and set the record straight and let you know that Adam is not writing what I have to say here and that my opinion of the podcast are completely my own. And furthermore, Casey by... Casey By made his opinion of the podcast known when he came on and read Adam's diary. So, I mean, why would I, he, come on the podcast now in support of it? So, that's all I have to say, and let's begin. I often find it funny, the way that Americans romanticize the lives of gypsies. Myself, personally, given the choice between living in Ohio and living in communities that are, unfortunately, ravaged by significantly higher rates of poverty and and drug abuse, would choose Ohio every time. So what I'm about to tell you should not be taken as a judgment or an endorsement of a gypsy culture, but simply a statement of how it was. At the top of their hierarchy, you had the chiefs, who were older men, by and large idle, and they secured their idleness by controlling the economic engine of the gypsy community, which were their children. The children would go out begging by virtue of being far more sympathetic than the old men, and would bring whatever they could back to the chiefs. The other means the chiefs had of income would be collecting a dowry when their daughters were married. The dowries were usually around 2,000 euros, which for people who lived off less than 200 euros per month, every chief could see himself maintained for a year or more for every daughter he had. Now we first met Vanya the gypsy outside of a nightclub that I detested, but Cousin Nikolai had a fondness for, and I remember the drinks being outrageously overpriced, and so we would leave the nightclub, cross the little alleyway, and find Vanya, who was selling beers out of a plastic bag, and we would quickly drink them and then return to the bar. 
This was one of Vanya's little money-making schemes, which he had many of. The most creative being a new twist on old insurance scams, where he would rub his legs in raw beef and take a walk through dog parks. Now the muse of Vanya's creative endeavors was a gypsy daughter by the name of Ekaterina, who was young and skinny, with olive skin, beautiful with jet black hair and bare feet like a woodland spirit. She was the daughter of the chief Bogdan, who was a giant, an easy nine foot tall, and was envious as he was cheap. The gypsies lived in a little shanty town up the side of a landfill, which the Politseski largely left alone for fear of the smell. One day, Cousin Nikolai and I were waiting for Vanya outside of his little corrugated steel shack when we heard a commotion from down the way that was drawing all the little gypsy children towards it. So Cousin Nikolai and I followed them and we found Vanya and the Chief Bogdan. Now Vanya had been whipped up into a frenzy having found the Chief Bogdan playing dominoes and the Chief had changed his mind on an agreed upon dowry of 3,000 euros and had changed it to 3,500. And so Vanya had challenged him at knives, and they were getting ready to cut each other to pieces. But Vanya knew that he had to be quicker than Bogdan and stay out of his reach, and so he was using Bogdan's great strength against him and was dodging every lunge, sending Bogdan careening into the little lean-tos. And every time he did so, the whole slum would quake, and you could see the little dust clouds as he knocked over lean-to after lean-to, until finally the young grass at the top of the landfill tore as though it was on a seam to reveal all of the garbage that was beneath it and began rolling down the hill like a Persian rug and carried all of the little shacks down with it. And once at the bottom of the hill, I scrambled out of the pile of garbage I had found myself in and found Cousin Nikolai. And so too were all the gypsies emerging from the mounds of rubbish like little spring daisies until everyone was present and accounted for except for two, which were, of course, Vanya and the Chief Bogdan's daughter. This month at Gentlemen's Mills, we're selling products for death. Yours or others. Coffins, urns, embalming services, suits, black flowers, doves to release graveside, headstones. Death is big business, and where there's big business, you'll find Gentlemen's Mills there. Plate and fork in hand, pushing to the front of the line for our piece of the pie. Digital Tombstone with Face Recognition Technology. This granite headstone with an LCD face spells out the deceased's name and birth and death dates and also uses advanced facial recognition to send a personal message to each individual graveside mourner, such as, Miss you, Mom. I didn't expect to see you here, Connie. That fake grieving deserves an Academy Award, Rob. Rather you than me, Fred. And don't touch the flowers, Kim. 
If the recognition technology sees someone it doesn't recognize, the tombstone sinks underground and sends out an intruder alarm at a deafening volume throughout the cemetery. Till death do your part. This headset features a combing mechanism that is triggered when your Gentleman's Mills smartwatch suspects your heart has stopped beating. Mount the device when you feel ill or any time you engage in risky behavior. Your very death sets in motion our best side part. I'd rather be fission grave plot decoration. This fun-loving decoration implies the deceased would rather be fission than lying there dressed like that. We note that the plaque previously stated, I'd rather be Fission, F-I-S-S-I-O-N, a custom order made by one of the gentleman's longtime nuclear energy clients who died before achieving his noble goal of self-sustaining energy and also before paying the gentleman in full for his grave decoration. We won't say which of the gentlemen modified the word fission, F-I-S-S-I-O-N, to look like fission, F-I-S-H-I-N, but we will say it is a very high-class modification from the hand of a seasoned alterer of the written word. Dead Ringer. Guilty that you never let the deceased win in any of life's competitions? Free yourself by purchasing Dead Ringer. This small box is packed with games that a corpse is almost sure to win. We picked them on that very basis. Why, it's a dandy coffin, after all. These custom coffins are made out of the finest oak with beautiful gold inlays and handsome wood staining. And also, they're covered in a mix of seeds from dandelions and other weeds, so that once you're lowered into the very earth, those seeds will sprout an unmanageable mini-garden of crabgrass, ragwort, and thistle. Those Gentlemen's Mills fans who love to confound groundskeepers, you know who you are and you are legion, will continue to annoy the living, even in death. Cream mate. Sadly, most of us die alone, and more people than ever before are being cremated. Well, now you'll be lonely no longer with Gentlemen's Mills' new cream mate, a full-size mannequin that's been filled with Gentlemen's Mills' own deluxe value cream to mimic human viscera. The cream mate embraces your stiffening corpse as you're pushed into the crematory oven. As the flames engulf the both of ye, cream mate's body will burst its creamy interior as your blood vessels do the same. Your bodies melt together, your ash pile forever enmeshed. You are loved. You are lovely. You will never be alone forever. Paint a mustache or red lipstick on the mannequin to change its gender at your discretion. Total Recall Dead Edition. The film is hooked up to your electrocardiogram. The second that line goes flat, the film begins. Welcome Worm Deluxe Coffin. Each Welcome Worm Deluxe Coffin is built with tiny doors pre-installed to admit worms so that they won't have to inflict any damage on your precious coffin in order to reach your delicious body. Available in either revolving door style or automatic door style like the kind you see at grocery stores, which is appropriate because to a worm, your coffin kind of is a grocery store. Expanding Headstone. Each day it gets a little bigger until, eventually, years from now, it will have taken over the entire cemetery, making you seem like perhaps the most important person ever buried. Certainly the most important person ever buried in that cemetery. Vulture Swatter. Some have found that a preferable alternative to burying a body beneath the ground is to simply leave the body above ground and hire a gentleman's mills vulture swatter to keep carrion eaters at bay with an arsenal of rackets with handles of varying lengths. Please note that any vultures that die as a result of the vulture swatter's swats immediately become property of gentleman's mills 
and clients who attempt to claim them will be subjected to the same swats the vultures are getting. Cause of death certificate ennobler. Was your cause of death ignoble? Is that apparent on your cause of death certificate? Well, with Gentleman's Mills Cause of Death Certificate Ennobler Service, we will obtain your cause of death certificate through secretive means, correct it with a red pen in order to make your cause of death appear to be less shameful, and then return it to whatever file drawer we found it in, with nothing but a trail of bribes and threats linking us, or you, to it. Ghost Plate. Mount this bland, unappealing commemorative plate in your house. If, when you die, you become a ghost, head straight to your house and knock the ghost plate to the floor, where it is guaranteed to shatter loudly, letting everyone in the house know that actually, yes, you are a ghost now. But since no one had any special affection for the plate, they won't be sad you broke it. Mourner Slaker. Worried that people will use claims of rising thirst to justify spending less time staring somberly at your grave? Gentleman's Mills Mourner Slaker is a graveside drinking fountain handcrafted with the explicit aim of nipping that excuse not in the butt, which is a common malapropism, but in the bud, which is the correct phrasing of the idiom. Half Master. Attach this inconspicuous device to your worst enemy's flagpole, then attach its inconspicuous companion device to your body. When you die, the devices will communicate and your enemy's flag will be instantly lowered to half-mast, locked into place, and the pole will be electrified, making initial attempts to raise the flag back to full-mast very difficult and even dangerous. With half-master, you laugh last via your worst enemy's very own flag. In-home hospice critique. With this special service, Gentleman's Mills will send a carefully selected critic to your house to nitpick every single thing that your hospice provider does. One of our most infamous and challenging offers of all time. Welcome everyone to Regarding the Dawn this month. I am Cousin Ben. And I'm Dwayne. And Brooks isn't going to be on the podcast this month, but he's nearby. Nearby? He's he's right over there in the hospital, Ben. Right there. What part of what I just said was untrue, Dwayne? That's not the point. Uh, Besides, uh, perhaps you could just enlighten both myself and the audience then, Dwayne. What, What is the point? The point is that you... Don't have to be so cavalier about it. Dwayne, I am being calm about the situation because there is nothing exceptional or special about Brooks' situation. There's nothing exceptional. Ben, Brooks has rabies. And? And rabies. Rabies is not an everyday occurrence, Ben. Millions of animals are dealing with rabies every single day, Dwayne. Oh. That is a daily Are you freaking kidding me? Are, are you calmer now? Yes. No more outbursts? No. Good. Then let's continue. So, Brooks is not going to be here this month because he's in the hospital getting 700 shots in the stomach for contracting rabies in the line of duty. Now, see, th- see, that is what I'm talking about. How can you even make a joke like that when, when he's in the hospital getting subjected to all that pain and... Dwayne, and re- he isn't getting 700 shots. He's getting, like, 70. I know that! You, you don't think 70 shots is painful? Dwayne, sometimes people who are committed to a cause or a goal will be willing to subject themselves to uncomfortable situations in order uncomfortable to... Uncomfortable si- It's not that, dude. It's... 
It's you. He was taking a picture of a raccoon. That's it. He wasn't... It wasn't anything noble or, or special. He was just taking a crummy picture of a ratty, old, nasty raccoon, and he Dwayne, got- look, look. I know you are having a hard time with this, but let's think of the listeners here. All right? Let's think of our audience. Let's use this as a learning situation for them, okay? Okay. Kids, don't take pictures of rabid raccoons. End of lesson. No, 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 Dwayne. Like this. Everyone, Brooks has demonstrated for us, through his commitment to his craft, how far some people are willing to go to create great nature-related art. He is willing to risk his health and maybe even his life in order to create some art that is not the plain old boring everyday run-of-the-mill nature art. He was willing to get into the trenches. You mean dumpster. To get into the trenches with nature at its most vicious and do battle with Seriously? The, I, really? You told him to get a selfie with the raccoon in a headlock. And he didn't even flinch. He went right in there and did what was necessary for the photo. He is a good little soldier for general art. Ben, this is... I, I, are you saying that a crappy photo of some stupid rabid raccoon is worth your life? Are you saying that general art would just use us as cannon fodder for You see, Dwayne... This is one of the things that is holding you back from achieving your full potential as an artist. That photo will not be crappy. It will not be a photo of just some dirty homeless man wrestling a rabid raccoon for a selfie. Art did not use Brooks as a disposable foot soldier in the War of Life. That photo will be glorious. It will be amazing. It will be transcendent. It will be a selfie, you moron. Well, alright, it... all right, look, if, if I can drink this glass of water, then, then I'm home free. But, uh, like, if I can't, then... Um, then well, uh, hurry up and um, do it then. Okay, okay, just, just... Just wait. All right, all right, here. Okay. Here I go. Wait, 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 wait! What? 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 Why wait. are you in such a hurry for me to go first, huh? What? What are you trying to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why aren't you going first? Why are you in such a hurry for me? Me to be the oh, first one. Oh, come on. Just drink the stupid water, rabies boy. Oh, 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 I see how it is. You were just trying to deflect the attention from yourself. Is that a little spittle I see on the corner of your mouth? Look, you idiot. I was the one who remembered that if you have rabies, you are severely hydrophobic and incapable of drinking water. Why would I bring that up as a test if I had it? Because just to keep me busy and create self-doubt in me so that I would be too distracted to notice you trying to bite my fingers off and eat them. Rabies doesn't make you a cannibal, you idiot. Oh, yeah? That isn't what Cronenberg said in his movie, Rabid. It was a vampire movie, not a rabies movie. Ha! I knew it. You want to drink my blood instead. I tricked you. Ha 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 ha. Shut up! Shut up! You shut up, Edward! I'm on Team Jacob! Oh. Okay, so... We will both... We both will hook our arms and drink at the same time so no one can hide the fact that they have rabies and are going to turn into the thing and try to build a spaceship out of the radio equipment. Agreed. Okay. On three. One, One, two, three. I saw you drooled. You, you, no, you, no, you, no, you, I, you have rabies. No, no, I don't, Dwayne. I spilled it all over myself when you started to twitch. I didn't twitch. I got some down the wrong tube. Whatever, whatever, look. We're fine. We are covered in water, and we aren't coming unglued. And I drank some. Yes, Dwayne, you drank some. It's fine. So we don't have to get we don't have to get any of the rabies cooties. We didn't nothing. Brooks is the only one. We're we're safe. Oh. We must be all right. <laughs> oh man, I was so worried. <laughs> yeah, well, 
So was I. I I wasn't looking forward to putting a stake in your heart and cutting your head off. What? You realize if he... If he really does have rabies, that the only way we will know for sure is to kill him and dissect his brain, right? Okay, so, um, Ben is, in, uh, ben is inside the hospital now, finding out how Brooks is doing and, and when he can be released. I was too nervous to go in, and, and, and I, I hate hospitals, so I made him go in alone. He, um, he wasn't happy about it. He's never happy about anything. So, it's just you guys and me waiting out here. Man, I hate hospitals and blood. There was a lot of blood, guys. The whole back seat of the car was covered. It, it was just like the blood beast had been riding with us. I told Ben to make sure they gave him a bath before they checked him out. If he hated baths before, the rabies won't help at all. And then what? I mean, what now? What, when can we get... What? What's that look for? What, what, what's wrong? They... The, doc, the doctor said that there's no cure for rabies. What? Brooks is dead? No, no, he's alive. Because he didn't show symptoms yet. They gave him the vaccine, but they said that if he had showed symptoms, it would have been fatal. Oh, man. Don't do not do that. I, I, I thought he was dead, dude. That, that's not funny. But but they, 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 they said the virus can incubate in him for... As long as 25 years. 25? 25 years. So, he, he could go... He, he could go rabid at, at any time. And, and then... And then... Any time? Yeah, so... Between your blackouts and his, his, uh, but that means, that means we could still have it too. Well, so I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to wait here and, and go get Brooks now. He's supposed to be. He's supposed to be getting released, and Dwayne is bringing the car around. So, Out of partner. There he is. How you doing, man? All sore and tired, you know, but I'm clean. They scrubbed my skin off. Yeah, you do kind of have a pink glow to your skin. 
Yeah. Well, I didn't know you had so much gray in your beard, man. <laughs> That's because there ain't any blood in it now. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess not. <laughs> can oh. we just go get some food? I really need a cheeseburger. Oh, yeah, sure. We can go get some food. We also got we got a whole bunch of nice, clean, cool bottled water for you to drink in the car, too. <laughs> nah, I'm good. Not thirsty. Just hungry. Well, the doctor said you need a lot of water from here on out. Uh, the doctor didn't tell me that. Well, I mean... Hey, man. You what? are taking all the animal photos from here on out now. Oh, uh, okay. Sure. Anything you say. <laughs> oh, here comes Dwayne. Let's go. Regarding the dawn. Regarding the dawn. Regarding the dawn. Regarding the dawn. Lower, 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 lower those eyelids, lower your body onto a bed or couch, lower your heart rate, lower. You find yourself in a familiar wooden cage. When you were first put into the cage, it had a grass floor, but your pacing has reduced it to hard-packed dirt. The cage does nothing to protect you from the elements, wind, rain, skunk stench, it all comes right in. Your captors mostly ignore you, even when they're sliding your food and water into the cage. They heed none of your pleas for information as to why you've been taken captive and what's going to happen to you. One good thing is that, against all odds, the food is great, varied, flavorful, generous portions, and isn't that mysterious. Is the food poisoned? Well, you've been eating it for weeks and you feel about how you'd expect to feel after weeks of living in an outdoor cage exposed to the elements and eating great food for three meals a day, so the food probably isn't poison. Still, you're eager to escape the cage. No one likes to be imprisoned no matter how good the food is. Sure, a starving person might like it for a while, but once they weren't starving anymore, they'd probably turn their sights toward freedom, especially if they were imprisoned in an outdoor cage that exposed them to the elements. It should also be noted that you're in a temperate climate, but it does get chilly at night. And like I said, there's rain to deal with, wind to deal with, and the forest around your cage is absolutely rife with trigger-happy skunks, which sometimes even spoils your meals, good though they are. Your captors are dressed uniformly. Another way to say that is that they're all wearing uniforms. Their uniforms are bright red, but your captors might be colorblind because sometimes when they hear strange noises in the woods, such as the sounds of skunks fighting or hikers shouting P.U. through plugged noses, they crouch in a patch of green weeds, apparently in the belief that they are blending in, when in fact they are sticking out like two hands comprised of nothing but sore thumbs. This simile is especially apt because you have exactly ten captors, and the redness of their uniforms is very close to the red one would expect to see on a very sore thumb. You wonder if you could find a way to use your captors' colorblindness to your advantage. For example, what if they had two keys, a red one and a green one, and one of the keys was the key to your cage, and then you could convince them to let you have the wrong key, but then, because they're colorblind, they might accidentally give you the right key and then you could use it to get out. But the more you think about it, the more you realize that this isn't so much a plan as it is a fantasy. You have no plan. And limiting yourself to plans that factor in the possible colorblindness of your captors isn't a great way to come up with the best plan. You know that. What if you stopped eating? 
Could you get thin enough to squeeze between the wooden poles that make up your cage? That's when you realize the reason for the good food the captors keep serving you. Your getting thin enough to slip out of your cage is exactly what they're trying to prevent. They must have realized after they built it that a very thin person would be able to escape pretty easily. So they decided to ensure that you would never get thin enough to do that. And the best way to keep you from getting thin would be to supply you with delicious meals that are easily the highlights of your otherwise formless, boring, uncomfortable days. You'll stop eating, that's what you'll do. You'll bury the food when your captors aren't looking. And each day you'll get thinner and thinner, and then one night, when all of your captors are asleep, you'll turn yourself sideways and shimmy your way right out of the cage. You'll be free! It's a foolproof plan as long as your captors don't notice how thin you're getting. Will they? How observant are they? Maybe that's something you should test. You take the paper and the colored pencils that your captors gave you to keep you from whistling to yourself all day, and you write a little note that says, No one likes captors. You pin the note to your shirt with the pins that your captors gave you to use for pinning moths to cardboard during your moth-killing phase, and then you wait for one of the captors to bring you your lunch. When he does, he doesn't even glance at the insulting note on your shirt. Not observant at all. Your plan to get frighteningly thin and then slip through one of the gaps in your cage is a go. That is, until you smell the food, which is so tempting that instead of burying it in an uneaten state, you consume it entirely. This plan, you realize, is not going to work. Disappointed with your own lack of self-control, you decide to drown your sorrows in some whittling. You've had trouble getting into whittling since your captors provided you with a hatchet instead of the penknife you requested, but you're not exactly negotiating from a position of power, so you figure you can take another shot at getting some pleasure out of whittling with the hatchet. Another issue, though, is that the only wood they've given you to whittle are just these little broken sticks, these pathetic twigs, and you know they can get better wood than that because, like, look at the whole huge cage they made for you entirely out of wood, right? The combination of the unwieldy hatchet and the tiny twigs makes for some very poor whittling materials. After a full two minutes, all you have to show for your effort is a perfect miniature replica of a stag beetle. But who cares about that? Who could ever possibly care about that? You hold it up in front of your face and you turn it back and forth, doing the opposite of admiring it. Psst, says one of the captors. He's standing at your cage, looking at you, actually paying attention. Did you whittle that? He asks in a hoarse whisper. Yes, you say. You don't give me enough wood to whittle something bigger, and the hatchet blade is too big to whittle anything more intricate. I love it, says the captor. Can I have it? The key to your cage dangles from his belt. No, you respond. You captured me and stuck me in this cage. Please, says the captor. I'll do anything for it. I'm desperate for it. You walk over to the small campfire in the far corner of your cage, and you toss the whittled stag beetle into it, where it instantly burns to nothing. Too bad, you say. You should have thought of that before you captured me. The captor shakes his head as if emerging from a trance. Don't make noise, he says. He goes back to his business. You sigh and sit with your head resting against the wooden poles of your cage, idly chopping the dirt near the base of the cage, idly swinging the hatchet through the empty space between the wooden poles of the cage. You whistle your special whistle and a trained skunk trots out of the woods. Fetch me something metal, you say, something roughly key-sized. The skunk waddles away, then returns a few minutes later with something in his mouth. Bring it here, you say. He drops whatever's in his mouth into your outstretched palm. It's a key-sized crucifix that you've seen one of your captors wearing every day since you got captured. He wears it locked on a tight chain around his neck. Wow, you say, did you get this off that captor without him noticing? 
The skunk says nothing, which you take as a yes, despite the fact that you know for a fact that the skunk would remain silent even if the answer was no. You slip the crucifix into the pocket of your $1,300 pants, smirk to yourself, and spend the rest of the day using your full-size shovel to knock down the spider webs in the high corners of your cage. And now, as you open your eyes, take the peace of never having to recognize the opportunities you've missed or are currently missing with you this month, even when you're inside of one or more doors.